if you can track down a Bible, and there are some in the racks and the chairs in front of you, uh, you can turn to page 982. 982. We've been uh, going through a series together through the letter of First Peter, and we're just taking it week by week and looking at some of the things that are there. And this morning, we're in chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, and we're looking at this beautiful, beautiful way of Christ. <clears throat> so let me read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. This is 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went, and made, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. And God, we pray that you would do a redemptive work in this moment, that you would take this word by your spirit and you would change us. And you would help us to know who you are and what you've done and what it looks like to live faithfully in this moment. So, Lord, we ask for your ministry to us in, in this moment, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, I was sitting after church. We do a thing called Rooted. We do small groups together. I was sitting at my Rooted table with my crew, and Jeff says to me, uh, these last few weeks have been pretty hard, huh? Looking at the stuff we've been talking about and preaching on these different uh, controversial subjects and things like that. And I, and I was so naive in that moment, not thinking ahead. And I go, you know what? I think it gets easier from here. And uh, then this week, I looked at the text again, and I was like, oh, no, not this week uh, or next or anytime soon. But uh, this is a passage that is very, very challenging. I said it last week, but when we commit to preaching through various portions of Scripture, and we do that on purpose, 
And a part of the reason why is what's happening today. This is not a, this is not a passage I would pick for myself of like, you know what, we're going to go here. This will be super easy and clear. This is one of those challenging passages that it, it only comes up because it's next. And uh, that's a good thing. Um, one of the guys that I've learned a lot about preaching from, his name's Mike Bullmore, and he was a professor of preaching. He's a practitioner now. He leads a, a church in Wisconsin, but he put it like this. He used an analogy. He said, your preaching ministry needs to look like building a house. And every time you preach, you're, you're adding things to that home. You're putting up a board. You're putting, you know, you're putting something in there. But here's the thing about, about the preaching ministry. Not every board is going to be valued the same way. Not everything that you put into your preaching ministry is going to be the sort of thing that gets everyone excited. There are certain boards, you just need them in there. Like at the top of a wall, there are things called nailer boards. And they don't, they, they, they're the thing that you attach the drywall to. And most people would not give a rip about a nailer board, right? You never sit around thinking about a nailer board. Uh, you, you'll never see it. You, it won't even be on your radar. But that it's there matters for the integrity of the wall, the way that the drywall matches up, the seams there, and those sorts of things. Well, this sort of passage, especially at the end here, there are some things here that, that feel like we're dealing with something that God has given to us that we wouldn't pick for ourselves. Uh, but it's important. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable, including this one. So let's look at this now. We're going to look at it under the three divisions that we can find here. And that's, first off, that there's a way of Christ in verses 8 to 12. It's telling us something about how if you're a Christian, you actually ought to interface with the world in a particular way that looks an awful lot like the Lord himself. And then secondly, we find out that there's an opportunity. If you're doing this, there's actually an opportunity to tell other people about your Lord. You're, you have an opportunity to witness, to, t to tell the good news of who Christ is and what he's done for you. And then finally, it's all based off of the work of the Lord. And that's what we find in verses 18 and following. We find that there is this work that he has performed for us. And that actually undergirds the whole thing. Well, first off, the way of Christ. Really, what this is saying is, if you're a follower of Christ, it really does matter that you have the character of Christ, that you actually have this inner quality about yourself that's manifesting in the way that you're dealing with the world, that you're dealing with the world in a way that looks like the Lord himself. <clears throat> Notice here in verse 8, all these terms that have to do with character qualities. Finally, all of you saying anyone, anyone who's a follower of the Lord. He's talked about all these different groups, but he says, now listen, every single one of you, all of you that are followers of the Lord, here's what you should do. Be like-minded. Think about the church as this thing that God cares about her unity. He cares about us being in relationship one to another and loving and serving each other. Be like-minded. And this is a, this is not something I'm seeing a lot of right now, because oftentimes we're not like-minded, we're divided. We, when we look at somebody who doesn't agree with us, we say, I'm going to part ways with them. I'm going to push them aside. But this is a reminder that the church is to be unified. We're to pursue the unity of the bond of peace, the unity of Christ and the bond of peace. We're to be sympathetic as we deal with other people. We're to look to understand where they're coming from and why they come to the conclusions that they have. And we're to love one another as Christ loved us, we're to be compassionate and humble. All of these different things are describing the character of the follower of, of Christ, that we're actually supposed to be like him. 
And I hope that as people interact with us as his followers, that that's the kind of experience that they would have, that they would look at us and they would say, these people are like Christ. They're gentle, they're compassionate, they're sympathetic, they're united, and they are an expression of the Lord himself. I want to make that a very high priority. In a divided time, what we need right now is a church that looks like the Lord. We talk, around, uh, we talk about it around here as gospel culture, that the good news of the gospel shouldn't just be a doctrine that's held on a piece of paper, but it should be the vibe that when people experience relationship with us, relationship with the local church, they should feel like the Lord is there and, and he is welcoming me into this experience with him through his people. We care deeply about that. This shows up then in this idea of being non-retaliatory. Look at verse 9. Uh, the, the idea is when hardships come our way, instead of trying to get even, instead of trying to get back at others, we actually respond like the Lord. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. So when hardships come our way and when people begin to speak ill of us and when they say, okay, you follow him and that's what you mean by that, and they begin to say all kinds of different things, the Christian is not to retaliate and to say, you know what, I'm going to match your hostility with my own hostility. If you're going to insult me, then I'm going to speak about you in a contemptible way. I'm going to share with everyone else what I don't like about you. This is saying that's normal. That's the way that the world operates. When you get hurt, you hurt back. When somebody does something evil to you, you try to get even. But the way of Christ is very different. It is non-retaliatory. So Christians, if we end up in a situation where we are increasingly critiqued for our faith in the Lord, if our commitments and our convictions reflect biblical teaching and the world begins to hate that, and if they begin to do harm to us, we do not retaliate. We bless. That's the teaching of the Lord himself. He calls us to this so that we might bless other people. We've been called to this so that we may inherit a blessing. We're to love our enemies and pray for them and do good to them. Now, this idea didn't come out of nowhere. It actually comes from Scripture itself. So Peter cites Psalm 34. He says, look, this has always been a part of our Bible. This way of life is very, very important. Having the character of Christ and not retaliating, and let me show it to you here in the Old Testament. It says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's what, here's what Peter's saying. What you need to do, your obligation, your job is to do the right thing. Your job is to do good. It's to pursue peace. It's to seek that out. It is to refrain from the evil activities that are so prevalent and so available to you. You're to prevent your mouth from speaking evil. You're, you're to prevent yourself from doing these things that are out of step with the Lord himself. You must pursue what God wants. That's your job. And the eyes of the Lord are on those who do right. He is attentive to our prayers when we're living in harmony with him and his face is against those who do evil. So our job is to have the character of Christ and the non-retaliatory response to a hostile world, and we are to pursue the right thing. That's our job. Now, this idea is showing up big time in my parenting right now. I've got two kids. They both hear this lesson 
quite often. Right now, my younger uh, child is hearing it more often. It's this idea right here. You are always able to respond. That's how God made you. Your response able. You have a job then and a responsibility to respond appropriately. So it doesn't matter what your friends are doing. Your job is to do the right thing. It doesn't matter what's going on circumstantially around you. Uh, if you don't like that, you might not be in control of that. But in that moment, your job is to respond the way that you're supposed to. So you are response-able. You are able to respond. The, the Lord is saying the same thing to us. He's reminding us here, your job as his follower is to do the right thing. Now, you might look at the circumstances and go, this is not what I want. And it is making me upset. It's making me very upset. The world is not the way I want it to be. The, the call here, though, is that we actually have to choose right. Instead of getting angry and evil and participating in the way of the flesh, the Lord is inviting us to respond in a beautiful way by doing right. And that's our job. They're, we're accountable to that. We're invited to do that. And, and it's expected that we would do these sorts of things, and we are responsible to perform the good things that the Lord is calling us to do in our own hearts and in our own lives. So this first point here is that we are to live out this way of Christ, the way of Christ, of his beautiful character, his beautiful interaction with a hostile world around him, and a commitment to doing what is right. But the second thing that we find here comes in verses 13 to 17, and it's the idea that if you're doing this, you're going to have opportunities to witness, meaning you're going to have an opportunity to open your mouth and explain who he is and what he's done, that you're going to be able to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But often this comes not just because people invite you to do it, but it, it comes because they observe the way that you're handling a hostile world, and it intrigues them. They, they see that you are being mistreated, and they see your Christ-like response, and it intrigues them, so they say, tell me more about that. Why do you do that? Let's look at it here. The, the reality is in verses 13 through 15 that we will experience suffering and hostility, but we're to navigate that quite gracefully. Verse 13 starts like this. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? If you're, if you're going to choose what God wants you to do, who's going to ultimately harm you? Now, this is not saying that if you're doing the right thing, it will be easy or there will be no persecution. In fact, the very next verse says, you're going to be persecuted. You might be persecuted on, on uh, account of your faith in God. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? The idea here is nobody can ultimately do harm to you if you're doing what God wants you to do. Now, you might lose your life. You might lose your possessions. You might lose your reputation. But if you are in the hands of God, choosing to do what he wants you to do, he will look after you, and you will be just fine. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the way that Paul puts it in Romans. If God is looking after you, he has very capable abilities to, to take care of you, even if things get much, much harder. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. What an incredible benediction. It's saying, look, if you suffer for choosing to do what God wants you to do, your condition is blessed. You are a blessed individual. This is the teaching of the Lord. If you recall, uh, he gave, the, Jesus himself gave a sermon on the mount where he started his sermon like this. He gave several different 
categories of blessing. Beatitudes is what we call them. And he lists them out, and they're things like poor in spirit and uh, meek and uh, mourning and all these different things. The last one, though, he spends a little bit of extra time on. And here's what he says. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, blessed are those who persecute Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord himself reminds us when you are persecuted for your faith in him, you are blessed. And you shouldn't boo-hoo, you shouldn't complain, you shouldn't grumble about this and be like, woe is me, I can't believe everything's just not in my favor. But what we actually do is we're called to rejoice. We rejoice because we're joining in the work of the Lord in the world. We're called to do this. This is what um, Stephen did. If you recall, in the book of Acts, there was an individual, he was following the Lord, he gets an opportunity to preach a sermon, and uh, he's doing a great job with it. He's explaining kind of the history of God's dealing with his people, and then he gets to the end of his sermon, and he says, oh, and by the way, this is all, and has always been about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, and you rejected him. Now, when his audience hears that, they get so angry with him that they pick up rocks, and they begin to stone him. They're, going, they're executing him in that moment, and while that's happening, he doesn't retaliate He doesn't cry out to God and say, vindicate me, prove these guys that they're wrong and I'm right. What does he do? He prays for them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is the way of Christ. This is that beautiful way of Christ. And it helps people to understand who he is when we are suffering, but we're dealing with it gracefully. And and people go, okay, what is that about? What is that about? But verses 14 and the beginning of 15 remind us, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. It's reminding us that we don't have to be fearful. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Christians, right now, you might be looking at the world, and you might be looking at the trends in the world, and you might be kind of wringing your hands going, I don't know what's going to happen. We've got a midterm election coming up. I don't know how this is going to shake out. And everyone's kind of spun up about it. And the Bible keeps telling us, do not fear. Do not fear their threats. Do not fear the outcome of these things. Instead, what we need to do is remind ourselves of our Lord. In your hearts, revere the Lord. In your hearts, remind yourself that Christ is on his throne, and he's doing just fine. He's in control. He's not anxious or worried right now. He's not fretting right now. He is in control, and he is working all things together for good. If that's true, then Christians, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear threat. We do not have to fear the potential of losing cultural ground. We can trust that the Lord is good and is in control. Now, when we do this, people will take note. Look, what, what's, what's going on with you? Like, How is it that you can suffer and do that gracefully? So look at verse 15. When that happens, here's what we're to do. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So when you're living out the character of Christ and when you're interfacing with the world in such a 
radically different way. And when they see the beauty of Christ and that non-retaliatory spirit and that love and that gentleness, and when they see you deal with hostility, with that gracefulness, they're going to go, tell me more. What is this hope that you have? Why, why are you different? And my concern right now is that a lot of people who call on the name of the Lord, who call themselves Christians, their hope is indistinguishable from the rest of the world. So if you look at them and the things that they get anxious about, it just looks like everyone else, like, a, like an unbelieving neighbor, the same sort of concerns. Christians are supposed to have a, a hope that's a living hope. That's from chapter one. You've been born again into a living hope. You have something different. You have a live hope. You have a, a savior who's at the right hand of the Father right now, and he is going to bring his reward with him for you. Your hope is different. And let that different hope be known so that people are intrigued by it, and they go, what is that hope? And then you say, well, guess what? I've been prepared for this conversation because I have something that I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about my Lord. I want to tell you about his saving work. I want to tell you about, about the promises that he has offered to those who believe in him by faith. I want to tell you about the hope of glory. I want to tell you about the resurrection. I want to tell you about his lordship. I want to tell you I'm prepared because I have this good news to share with you. But when you do that, do that with gentleness and respect. They are not your adversary. You are not in conflict with them. You do not have to argue them into the kingdom. Your job is to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect the vibe in which you deal with other people actually should match the good news of the message. They should feel invited into a deeper understanding of who God is and what he's like. So be prepared, but do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That even if people double down on their commitment to hostility, they look at you and they say, you just don't quit, do you? You continue to repay evil with blessing. And so even the words that they're speaking about you become this thing that they're ashamed of. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We're being reminded this is the priority. If you're going to suffer, let it be for the right things. Let it be on account of your faithfulness to God, not because you're a jerk, not because you're abrasive and you're a believer in Christ, but you're dealing with the world in a way that actually is off-putting. Let, let that hostility flow from people's resistance of Christ himself, but you persist in doing good. And if you suffer, let it be for doing good rather than for evil. So we, we are to have that behavior of Christ, that character of Christ, that non-retaliatory spirit. When people are intrigued by it, we're to be ready to tell the, the news, to witness it about who Jesus is and what he's done for us with gentleness and respect. And you might say, okay, Cor, that sounds wonderful. And I would gladly sign up for that. Here's the problem. That doesn't sound like me. In fact, I am often pretty irritable and rude and I'm easily provoked. And when people say mean things to me, I don't do that. Whatever you're talking about, that just sounds strange. What I do is more normal. I get mad and even. So how would I ever do this? How would I ever change? How on earth would I ever become Christ-like in my response to a hostile world? Well, the answer is here for us in the text, and it's actually all over the Bible. The way that we change is not by trying harder. I mean, you, you could do that. It's just not going to work. You could try a lot harder to be a better individual and to respond differently to all the circumstances around you. 
what you'll find is you don't have the, the strength or the resolve within you to actually pull it off long term. What the Bible tells us is that we are changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The way that we become more Christ-like is we actually continually remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 puts it like this. This is how we change. When we look at the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing this, but when we look at Christ himself and we see his beauty and we contemplate and reflect on that beauty, the Spirit takes that reflection, that contemplation, and it changes us from one degree of glory to the next. It's an incremental, lifelong process where we just keep looking to the Lord and reminding ourselves, here's who he is, here's what he's done for me. And by doing that, the Spirit takes that and grows us into his likeness. We become more and more and more like him. So if we want to be these kind of people, we actually have to look to the Lord. And that's what Peter does for us here in verses 18 to 22. He shows us the work of Christ himself. It's the cross work of Christ, his ability to suffer and die for us, to bring us to God, and it is the good news of the gospel. Let's look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is one of my favorite verses because it's basically a, 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 the gospel in a nutshell. It's just that little idea of how does this thing work exactly? Well, here's what it is. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and by doing that, he brings people to God. It's the good news of the gospel. It's how it works. He was willing to stand in my place and pay the penalty that I deserve and take the suffering that would rightfully be aimed at me, and he takes that on himself, and by doing so, he exhausts the wrath of God, and he gives me the righteousness that I cannot earn. And that brings me to God. That's very, very good news. Now, this section, though, is very complicated, and that's what I was hinting at earlier. We, we, we get to this part, and we're like, wait, what's going on here? There's some very bizarre things that are brought up, and it's confusing, but, but let's look at the start and the finish of this idea, and then I think it'll make more sense. Verse 18, here's what Christ is doing. He's suffering for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, look down at the, at the last verse in our section. What does it say? Now he has gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and power in submission to him. So he was put to death in the body. Now he's raised to life through the resurrection, and he is in heaven at God's right hand, and everything now is subject to him. Now, if we just left those middle verses out, it'd be a lot easier, right? We just skip that, skip over that stuff, but we will not, we will not do that. We'll look at it here. But what it's reminding us to, to think about is that big picture. It's the work of Christ on our behalf. It's his saving work and the vindication that he has in glory right now. But let's briefly just look at this middle section. Um, verses 19 and following read like this. So after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What on earth is happening there? Right? You look at that and you're like, wait, who are the imprisoned spirits? 
when did he do this? What, did, what are we talking about here? But, but let me just suggest to you that the way we should look at this is it's a proverbial example from the Old Testament. He's looking at the people of God, and he's looking at that specific event of Noah and the judgment of God coming on all the earth and the flood that happened there and the way of salvation that was offered to Noah and his family and all who would believe. And people rejected that invitation of salvation, and therefore they experienced the righteous judgment of God. But if we look at it, then we can begin to see, here's what Peter is saying, and here's what is happening in our text. What's going on is the Lord is proclaiming his saving work. He's preaching to somebody. He's preaching about this salvation through water. He's preaching about this way of rescue. He's preaching about how somebody can come to experience salvation, and he's preaching to people who are imprisoned. Now, the commentators give a bunch of different ideas. We're not going to try to untangle that. I'll just tell you what I think is probably the best interpretation of it from my perspective, and you can go and do your own homework. What I think it's talking about is the people who heard about that saving work that God was going to do through the ark, and they rejected it. And therefore, they are now in a situation where they have turned from God, experienced his judgment, and they are now condemned. And what the Lord is doing is he's declaring his saving work, and he is declaring how that saving work unfolds. He is being vindicated. That's what the Lord is doing here. He suffered for sins. He dies. He comes back from the grave. And and what happened to him? Well, right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. He is glorified. And everything that he offers us is available. Everything that he offered through this proclamation of the good news is available to us today. So, so here's, here's what's incredible. As a preacher, this is, the, this is the best thing that I get to do. I get to offer that invitation to you right now. That way of salvation is available right now. It's salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's salvation through the waters of judgment, but it's placing your faith in what Christ has done and joining him in his saving work. And and part of the way that that works as, as Christians is we actually join him in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. That we will fill up a tank and full of water and people will step into that tank and they will join the Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when people do that, they are, they are declaring publicly, I trust him. What he did on that cross was for me. I trust him for salvation. And I join him in that death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that I die to myself, I die to my sin, and I'm brought to new life in Christ. So here's my question for you. Have you done that? Have you trusted him as Lord and Savior Have you trusted in his cross work for you? Have you joined him in that experience of death, burial, and resurrection through the waters of baptism? Have you done that? If not, let's let's do it. Let's make it happen. Let's fill a tank. Let's have you stand in front of everyone. Let's have you share your testimony of God's goodness to you. Let's have you join him in death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, look at verse 22 the pattern holds. Verse 22 says, he has now gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The the pattern that we found in chapter one was this. 
Suffering first, glory to follow. Suffering first, glory to follow. If you're, if you're following the Lord, that's what he did. He suffered. He bled. He died. He was executed. And it was bad news in that moment. But then he resurrected. And now he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is there in glory. And so glory has come for him. But the same pattern holds true for us. In this moment, life might be hard. It might be difficult. We might suffer. We might die. Suffering is happening right now in a fallen and broken world. But here's the good news. Glory is coming. The Lord is going to bring about his glorious return, and he will make all things right, and he will bring about his perfect judgment and justice. And those who've, who've entrusted themselves to his saving work get to experience that joy of salvation forever. Suffering first, glory to follow. It's coming, friends. So would you join him in believing in his saving work, and would you join him in helping other people come to know him as well? He died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring people to God, but we, through our graceful suffering, can also be a testimony of his saving work. Let's let other people know the good news of our Savior. Let's be gospel people, and let's proclaim that good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us, that you would change us, that you would make us more like your Son. We're praying, Lord, that you would give us the, the Spirit that would make us like Christ and help us to deal with a world that maybe doesn't go our way and we'll, we'll be just fine because we are trusting in our Lord. And we are revering him, and we are confident in his ability. And in the meantime, Lord, would you help us to be on mission, making known the good news of the gospel to as many people as will listen, and doing it with gentleness and respect. Help us, Lord, to help other people come to saving faith in him. We pray in his name. Amen.